You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, Will. Hello, David. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to Silver Screen Science. Woo, it's back! This special little sort of mini side series that we do in the Common Descent podcast. Back for 2020. Yeah, this is the first one of 2020. And this time we are talking about Tremors. Oh, I've been waiting so long. It's such a good movie. For those who are unfamiliar, Silver Screen Science is the series where we talk about movies, not just nitpicking what the movies get scientifically wrong, Mm -mm. although that is fun, but more interested in how does scientific stuff look in the movie? How does science look through the filter of cinema? How is it being translated to the audience? Where does the movie fit in that broad intersection of science and pop culture. Specifically, we like to talk about how they portray, usually animals and stuff, Mm -hmm. the scientific concepts, and how they portray scientists. Yes. And this movie has one. Yes. Which is enough to talk about. Yes, and it's a good one. Now, you might be wondering, why do Silver Screen Science now in March? Well, mostly because we're stuck at home. (laughs) Yep. And it turns out that that's a great time to watch movies and record some extra stuff. And we know a bunch of our audiences stuck at home because there's a whole pandemic going on. And indeed, as of this recording, we just got off of a Netflix party where we watched Tremors with a bunch of our audience members. And it was so much fun. And it was great. So moving ahead in this episode, be warned, we are going to talk about the entire movie. Mm Mm-hmm. This is your official spoiler warning. Now, the other question is, why Tremors? I'll give you three reasons. Why not? One, why not? (laughs) Classic monster movie. Excellent stuff. Reason number two, 2020 is the 30th anniversary of Tremors. And reason number three, we've actually had a bunch of people suggest it. Because our listeners have excellent taste. They are a a, a well-cultured group. So we're going to get into the science of the film, but first, Will, tell us about this Tremors movie. So Tremors, as you mentioned, came out in 1990, 30 years ago. It was directed by Ron Underwood, and it was released by Universal Pictures. And it is a really odd, technically cult classic, because it bombed in box office. Sure. But then it came out at the beginning and heyday of VHS. And so it then did very well on video, and it was one of, like, the earlier movies to do very well on video, and sparked this lovely following that it has. It is what would seem like a very typical sci-fi monster movie. You have a small town in a box canyon in the middle of Nevada with, like, a dozen people occupying it. Very small group that are suddenly beset upon by these strange, giant worm monsters. Yes, subterranean worm monsters. And the movie is, as the monsters slowly pick through the people, they have to figure out how to deal with these monsters as they learn about how they function. And it's beat for beat. It's your typical monster. It's a land shark movie. Yes. It's, It's, here comes the giant shark, but it's underground. 
and you're in the desert instead of the ocean. <laughs> yeah. But it brings such a different feeling to it because it puts lots of thought into different aspects. And it's a comedy. Yeah. Which kind of sets it apart from many similar monster movies in that the monsters are awesome and the movie is funny and entertaining. And so we're going to go ahead and talk about the sciencey stuff. We're not filmmakers, so we're not going to talk about, you know, cinematography and stuff like that really very much. Uh, that's for the after chat. But we are going to talk about science. And as usual, we like to start with the science of the creatures. And in this movie, there's only one type of creature. Will, tell us about the creatures of Tremors. The creatures and Tremors are Graboids. Graboids. Named in the movie by the people. Yes, by Walter. Yes. (laughs) And they are described by the film Giant Worm Monsters. 30-foot worm monsters. Uh, Like, that's what the synopsis calls them. But they aren't really wormy except for that they're underground and long-bodied. Right. They're shaped more like a leech, yeah. really, than a than a worm, like an earthworm mm-hmm. kind of thing. Or a really fat snake. Like, yeah. they've got a distinct head, you know, and That's true. they have this long body, no eyes on them, yeah. a shielded face. Yeah, like a beak. Yeah. The shield kind of, uh, the sort of beak shield. It has this four-pronged beak with a big upper shield where the, the cranium would be. And then a lower jaw with two side predator style jaws (laughs) on either side of it. And out of the mouth come three tendrils that have little mouths on it. Right. They're sort of like tongues, but they also have mouths and seem to at least a little bit move independently like they're exploring themselves. Absolutely. So it's, it's almost like it has little heads in its mouth. Yeah. That come out. And then the rest of the body is just a long, tubular, leech snaky body with scoots, little uh, uh, spines down the body that help push it through the ground. Yeah, they're described in the movie as that they move to push it along, kind of like cilia. Yes, exactly. On a cell. Mm-hmm. Or it, like uh, earthworms have little stiff hairs yes. on their body that they use to go through the ground in this exact way. So as far as movie monsters go, Graboids are pretty awesome. They're so unique. And they feel, obviously they're monsters, but there's a lot of cool animalistic stuff to the Graboids. Their design is really creative and lots of eye to detail on it. And that's why whenever I hear the movie described as a giant worm monster movie, it's like, yeah, but it's not. It's like... These are yeah. so not giant worms. They are they are really unique creatures. And I like that. So they, as you said, they have the sort of propelling themselves mm-hmm. underground like earthworms do. Although the Graboids are super fast. Yeah. And they're not shown to use the, um, what is it, peristalsis, that, that undulating motion that earthworms use oh sure sure, sure like you yeah. never see them like right, like, like they stretching scrunch, scrunch or up and then stretch squishing their body in snakes it's rectilinear motion is yeah. that right it's one of those they don't show that it shows it's suggested more that just like the individual spines are pushing and moving right and there are animals that sort of swim through dirt and sand yeah today and obviously there are animals that dig like moles but there are also, uh, uh, they're called uh, sandfish. Yep, yep. A type of lizard that swims through 
uh, uh, desert sands. And they're actually using a swimming, like fish swimming motion. Yeah, undulating, mm-hmm. pushing, you know, uh, uh, waving the body and tail back and forth. This one seems to be suggesting that they're moving more like centipedes over ground, where each little spine is pushing off like a little leg. I also like that their face looks, and I don't know if this is what they were going for, but it looks like a keratinous beak. Yes, it does. It looks like it's this keratin shield covering the face, which is a, a pretty nice touch. Yeah. And it's it's cool because there's definitely thought put into the anatomy of a predator that moves under the ground uh, in the way that this one does, is that they gave it mobility. You know, mm-hmm. they gave it the spines. They even draw attention to it in the film. They gave it a bulldozer, you know, like bullet shield on the face to plow through the earth. And they even show multiple times of it bursting, you know, using it as like a um, a battering ram yeah. against surfaces to burst out of the ground or burst through walls. And we should mention that they also track their prey through vibration. Yeah, seismic vibrations. And there are animals that do that, that, that basically hear through solid, mm-hmm. or, you know, in this case, loosely consolidated materials. Well, it's like the snakes sense vibrations more than they can hear, you know, sound through air. Right, right. I don't know if there are any animals that hunt through vibration like that. I know there are probably ambush predators that do it. I feel like there is a... Is it the golden mole that's in the desert? I feel like it listens for its prey on the surface. Okay. Uh, for the movement and the steps of insects on the surface, because it is effectively blind. Right. And that's the thing that they mentioned. Mm-hmm. The graboids are blind, which is totally sensible. They're yes. subterranean. So I know that there are there are certainly ambush hunters who track their prey through vibration. Like if, you know, they sense a vibration and then they jump up and they grab it. Well, lots of aquatic animals. And I was going to say, aquatic animals can sense vibration in the water. Mm-hmm. I don't know if there are many animals that pursue through vibration. Not particularly. Like, I mean, like, things like sharks use vibration, but they use that... As much as they use their other senses, like they're not tracking the fish purely through vibration. They're tracking it through scent and electrosense and vibration and sight. And so like, and there are ones who like, there are animals who have used vibration purely to catch their food because it's been documented that in pitch darkness, alligators can sense a treat being thrown into the water. And grab it purely through the vibration in the water. But that's something being thrown next to their face. They're not chasing it. Right. Now, the graboids do seem to follow vibration. And then when they get there, if they've lost track of the prey, those tongues come out, those tendrils, to search through tactile sense. It's like sweeping antennae. Yeah. Which is a, a very cool piece of anatomy and behavior for the graboids. Yeah, and it's well, it's once again a little bit of eye to to the detail of the anatomy. Now, the, the tongues were also part of the story because it builds it up as if the the serpent like tongues are the animal, right? And then it's revealed that they are just part of a much bigger creature. Uh, but it makes sense if you're a, a a cumbersome predator, 
you know, like by no means are the Graboids agile. No. Having something like that, having a chameleon tongue, makes it much easier to catch your quick moving surface prey. Yeah. And something that can kind of reach up above the surface and move around sort of looking for prey to sense without exposing your body to whatever might hurt you. I guess Bert. Bert and his wife, whose name I can't remember, who have all sorts of guns. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Now, of course, being movie monsters, they are very fast and very strong and extremely intelligent. And, you know, they're they're doing the monster thing. Yeah, overly motivated. Although I do appreciate that they are given limitations. Yes. In that, like digging animals in the real world, they go through the looser sediment and not through solid rock. Yeah, rocky and solid materials are difficult or impenetrable to them. And they also they also have a limit to their sense. You know, they are listening for vibrations, which means if you're not moving, you don't give off enough signal for them to pinpoint you. Right. They can't see you if you don't move. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and so they they give them some some limitations they give them some affinities yeah which and, makes them a little more animal and i like that they do like they have scutes they have the beak thing mm-hmm. and then they have this sort of softer body like they have armored and functional yeah. parts of the body and a kind of scaly rest of the skin it's yeah it's leathery uh so the movie calls them worms yes but they're not very worm-like. No. I don't know what they would be. Yeah, we never see that they have any, like, for sure that they have, like, a skeletal structure. Right. Yeah, when, whenever they pop, we don't see bones. Right. Presumably they're invertebrates. Yeah. And I'm sure that someone who knows, like, worms in the broader sense. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Not just, like, annelids, like earthworms, but, like, worms. Yeah, polychaetes and all and of Polychaetes and stuff. I'm sure someone out there could come up with a place for them on the family tree. I mean, they've definitely got polychaete qualities. You know, polychaetes have stiff spines that they use to walk with uh, along the body. They have hardened mouth parts that they use to feed with. Uh, Not all, but many. Uh, So they don't seem totally like unrealistic alien creatures. No. But of course, the part that is most interesting for our purposes, the, the most direct relation to the podcast, is the question of where they come from. Mm-hmm. And in the movie, it is briefly speculated by the, the movie's one scientist. Well, it's it's a scene where the characters are sitting on a rock and one of them spitballing of like, yep. they've got to be some kind of muca- mutation. No, no, no. Government must have made them. Yeah. A little, what do you say? A little surprise for the Russians. Yeah, that's... Yeah, <laughs> yeah so he's spitballing stuff, and then the scientist... It, it start, sort of, she's, she's thinking about where they could come from, and she makes the extremely good point mm-hmm. that they don't match anything in the living, like known to be living, or in the fossil record. Yeah, she says... Uh, she said that they they don't match anything in the fossil record. That's for sure. Yes. And it's, yep. No. And like that is an excellent trajectory to think about. And then she says, so maybe they predate the fossil record, which is a weird sentence, mm-hmm. which would make them billions of years old, which makes the first sentence make a little bit more sense. Mm-hmm. And then she says, and then somehow 
and we've just never seen them until now. At which point she kind of trails off like, yeah, that's that doesn't really yeah. make any sense. Which is it's it's. It's nice because the movie gives a potential answer, but the scientist is like, yeah, it doesn't make any sense. And I like that the scientist comes up with it. Yes. It's like, oh, what about this? No, no, I reject my own Mm -hmm. hypothesis because that doesn't seem to work. Now, of course, the notion of them, quote, predating the fossil record, what it sounds like is being implied there is probably like before the Phanerozoic, Mm -hmm. before we have good fossils of hard-shelled and boned creatures, which would make the Graboids, at the very least, Proterozoic, Mm -hmm. which is a time where there are pretty much only microscopic things, or nearly microscopic things. Yeah. So she's right to be dismissive. Yes. (laughs) There shouldn't have been (laughs) big Graboids back in the Proterozoic. Now, a thing that we didn't say in the beginning... Uh, which is relevant here, I, I know. We're only talking about the first movie. Yes. <laughs> We're only discussing what we see of these creatures in this film. If you want us to do the later ones, let us know. Yeah, because <laughs> I know that it's there's more explanation. They start to unravel more of the biology, more of the life cycle, more of the history, or at least they start to put into canon more of that stuff. Right. And all of this is sort of leading us into this, the next sort of large topic to discuss in this episode, which is the science of the movie. Mm-hmm. So they do mention the fossil record a bit, but then there's also a bunch of fun geology stuff. Yeah, because the scientist that leads us through the film is a seismologist, So, and they're moving through the Earth, so we get lots of commentary on the geology of the area. Yeah, she so she's putting down seismographs, which are tools that detect seismic motion. And these are the old school, you know, a needle on paper. Yeah. Somebody during our Netflix viewing asked if that's still how seismologists study seismic motion. And I don't think so, because I've seen digital seismic detectors. Mm-hmm. But I don't actually know what the professionals are using out in the field these days. And I have no clue because I don't know that I've ever seen a seismograph in person. Oh, well, you're missing out. They're pretty cool. We used to, in the the geology labs, when I taught them, Mick, our geology professor, would take out, it was was either a digital one, or at least it would translate it into digital. I don't know. It was our geology professor would take out a small seismograph and we'd put it on the floor and have the students jump up and down next to it to see how much vibration we could record on it. That's cool. So she's putting out these seismographs, and that's how they start to infer the data about the Graboids. Yep. So the main two characters, Val and Earl, Kevin Bacon and the other guy, (laughs) I don't know the actor, I'm sorry, are encountering the Graboids, and they are, you know, the, the, the Graboids are still hidden, still we haven't seen them, but they're attacking people. And then they talk to Rhonda, the seismo- seismologist, and she is looking at her charts of seismographic data. And then when the guys are arguing, she comes over and she's like, no, look at the data in the seismographs. There's multiple signals happening at the same time in different places. That's how we can detect how many there are and where they are. Yeah, we have we know that there are at least three more 
because I got simultaneous signals way too far apart to be from one source. Which is a very cool use of seismographic technology. And they use the seismograph to do the Jaws thing. Yeah, it's the the thumping footprint. And yeah, it's an impact tremor is what it is. It's pretty great. That that continues throughout the series, which is yeah, which is fun. Uh, that's super. I have not seen the other Tremors movies though. Will has. It's they're some of my favorite. There's also a couple other geological comments. Mm-hmm. One of my favorites is that Rhonda, the scientist, makes a comment. So uh, we mentioned that they can only move through the looser sediment. They can't move through the rock. Yep. And when she sort of draws that conclusion and announces it, the way she explains it is she says that they have an easy time moving through the Pleistocene alluvials, but they can't get through the granite. Yep. And then everybody stares at her and she says, dirt. Yeah. But Pleistocene alluvials, like that's water washed sediment that has collected in low areas in the past several thousand years forming more loosely consolidated sediment that has eroded off of the solid rock of the mountainous outcroppings on either side of the valley. That's awesome. Way to go, movie. It's such a nice little tidbit for them just to throw in. And it, I love it because they use it the typical way scientific jargon is used in movies of... I, I'm going to say some science words now, and everyone's going to look at me. They didn't pull the ultimate cliche of English. Right. You know, English, so, please. Yeah. Uh, but they use the that, that beat for the same overall joke, but it's accurate. It's yeah. not just science-sounding words like lots of movies do, where they're just like, yeah, no, the... <laughs> The hyperconflux. All right, that's not a word. <laughs> yeah, no, the, the quantum light bulb. Yeah. This is an actual term. <laughs> it's like they talked to a geologist. Which is fantastic. Another kind of geological term that gets used is there's a moment where she refers to residual boulders. Mm-hmm. So they're like, well, we can't run across the dirt because it'll find us, but we can hop across these rocks And she calls them residual boulders. And I don't think that's like a technical term. I assume what they're trying to say about them is either that they are outcroppings that have been weathered down to these big boulders, Mm -hmm. which is the less interesting option, or that they are boulders that have fallen down or been washed down from the walls of the valley. Which would make them sort of erratics. Yeah. That they are rocks that have been displaced from their original outcropping and placed somewhere else. And because that's a cooler, more interesting science thing, I like to think that that's what they meant. Well, what it makes me think of is, like, at the Great Fossil Site, we have these limestone boulders just speckled throughout because it is thought that they were falling off of rock faces higher up. Right. And that residual boulder sounds like a term that would make sense for those yeah (laughs) and it is a term that if somebody pointed to a bunch of you know there are places especially here in the u.s uh, up in the north where you'll have these flat plains and these big boulders in the middle of the plains because they were dropped there by glaciers yeah twenty thousand years ago if somebody called that a residual boulder i'd buy it yeah so if there are any geologists listening who have used the term residual boulders, let us know. I've not really heard that term. Yes. So I, they may have just made it up 
It may be half scientific. Another thing they focus on when it comes to the sediment is, you know, they, they use the correct terminology, but the fact that the middle of the valley is that loose sediment that has eroded off the mountains becomes an important plot point because it means that the mountains become their goal of safety. Yeah. If they can get into the solid bedrock of the granite mountains that surround the canyon, they'll be safe from the graboids. Yeah. And so geology actually becomes their plan of action, which is really cool. Yeah. Well, it's you you referred to the movie when we were watching it as a land shark movie. Mm-hmm. And you said it before and it's such a great comparison. Cuz yeah, they have to get to this movie's version of dry land. Yes, you're stuck out at sea in the middle of this desert. You need to find high points yep. out of the water, <laughs> off the ground, and eventually you need to get back to mainland. And I like that when she explains that, it then gets turned over to the other characters who know the area, because she's a visiting grad student. Right. And now they're the ones who are t- using that information to try to... And so it's cool that it's applying science in a practical way. Yeah. It's fun. It's, it's They do a very, overall, a very good job, I think, at that. There's also a couple mentions here and there, uh, hints of other geological phenomena, kind of. Yeah. Like, there's a landslide at one point, and then there's a point where they almost talk about sinkholes. Yep. But then Bert, I think it is, makes a comment about there are a lot of old mines in this area. That it could be collapsing mines mm-hmm. underground. So, eh, you almost talked about sinkholes. And then there are times when the graboids will get up underneath something, like the, a truck or a building, and start moving the sediment around. Yep. And it creates an effect that is similar looking to liquefaction. Yeah. Which is something that happens during earthquakes where your sediments, especially uh, water-borne sediments, are perfectly fine and fairly solid when they're stable when they're when they're not moving but then when you vibrate them the sediments spread out and you end up getting this sinking effect and they're not quite doing it in the movie with the graboids but it makes me wonder if that was an inspiration Mm -hmm. for the people who made it yeah if they watched earthquake videos and went that's cool let's make our graboids sink things yeah under the under the ground they also have a couple moments where they create um i don't know what the term would be pre-sinkholes where the graboids dig out areas that then become a pitfall when weights put upon it yeah yeah it's not a, a a hole yeah they didn't dig a hole like to the surface they tunneled underneath it and weakened that area so that when it's driven over or something it collapsed and so that's what happens with sinkholes is you have water digging out area underneath and then eventually the roof just gives way uh and they're doing that like with buildings and stuff where they're just digging out underneath the foundation of a building until it's slowly collapsing yeah which is a cool now once again they are very intelligent because they're movie monsters because they're monsters they're learning every single second but they're are animals that do similar things? Mm-hmm. It makes me think of antlions. Yes. Which are the insects that will excavate out a cone 
of loose sediment. Yeah, they just continually dig in a circle, flicking sand out, and eventually that circle gets deeper and deeper, and they have a perfect cone. And then they sit at the bottom underneath the sand, the sediment, and if an, another insect steps into it, because it's loose sediment, they have trouble climbing back out, and if they slide down to the center, they get eaten. And if my favorite thing that antlions do is if the insect starts to slide in but then catches its footing and starts to get out, the antlion just starts flicking sand at it yeah, and shooting it with <laughs> shrapnel until it upsets its footing enough to fall all the way in. So there are real-life animals that create sort of geologic features. Yes, they literally create sand traps. Yeah, and there, I know that there are also, I think it's an ant, a type of ant that has a mechanism that flings itself out of the trap. Oh, that's awesome. Have you ever seen it? No. I want to say it's an ant. It might be wrong. But it's some kind of insect that has some sort of spring Mm -hmm. effect so that if it starts falling in, it can launch itself violently out of the trap. That's awesome. (laughs) That's fantastic. So in terms of its use of science, I'm fairly impressed as silly monster movies go. I'd say the most unrealistic part of it is just the speed at which they have the graboids move through the ground yeah is like they are they are booking it at running speed like they are keeping up with humans at full sprint yes that's really fast to shove your face through dirt yeah dirt doesn't yield quite that nicely no i mean because they even make a point in the movie at one point that it is uh what does burt call it the ultimate bullet stop because they can't shoot through it. And it's like, yeah, that's why sandbag defenses has been a thing in military for ever and ever is good at stopping stuff. So, like, they do have a little bit of the physics issue there in that sometimes the dirt is treated as very solid and other times it's treated as very loose. Yes. (laughs) But, all in all, no, like, the scientific concepts and terms they use, they do a really good job, especially for a film. Yeah, especially for a 1990 monster. comedy monster film. Yeah, what would have at the time been considered a B-movie because it bombed yeah. in off box and it, office. And it is a B-movie, yeah. but it's a delightfully, it's so good. It's a excellent B-movie. <laughs> and speaking of good things in the movie, let's talk about its portrayal of scientists, which in this case is one scientist. Mm-hmm. Her name is Rhonda. She is a graduate student. I don't remember where they say she's from. No, I th- they just say, you know, is that that previous grad student? They go, no, he graduated. This is the new one. Right. They never say where. And she is a seismologist. She's out there taking seismographic readings of the area. And she is one of my favorite scientists in film. I like. I struggle to think of another film that so accurately depicts a scientist and even a grad student like oh yeah they do such a good job well she feels like a person that i know yeah no. not like a specific person but like that person could have been in our graduate program I, like i've definitely met rondas <laughs> she is enthusiastic about the science mm-hmm. she slips a little bit into jargon yep like with the alluvial comment the pleistocene alluvials she uses her data to sort of track the motions of the the graboids when they find the grab when they see it for the first time 
Earl and Val are like, wow, we're going to make a lot of money. And her first thought is, this is a major zoological discovery. Yep, and she's already making notes about the anatomy. Like, she's the first thing she says is, I don't see any external eyes. It must be completely subterranean. Yes. And like that, she's immediately analyzing it. Yep, she makes the comment about the fossil record. Mm-hmm. She makes a comment much late, at the, toward the end of the movie, about getting involved in the research yep. on the animal. But my absolute favorite thing about her... What really knocks her out of the park... Is that she knows all that, you know, she has this understanding of oh, subterranean animals and this and that. And then there are multiple times in the movie where the other characters will turn to her and say, hey, you're a scientist. Yeah, where do they come from? What are they doing? What are these things? And she says, why do you keep asking me these things? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I don't know. There's there's the, even the wonderful scene of them asking her stuff, and and she goes, I don't know. They go, aren't you a scientist? Shouldn't you have, like, a theory? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then she, like, looks around for help to be like, I, I don't know what else to say. <laughs> I'm a geologist. I'm a geologist. <laughs> and there are two reasons why I love this so much. One is that it is a direct subversion of a trope that we've talked about before. Yep. Which is the scientist, the, the master of all knowledge. That scientists are master, that know all science. That we dabble in everything science. And there are lots of movies that'll have a scientist who has the answer. Uh, we can explain, I can explain physics concepts and detailed chemistry. And I'm a, supposed to be a, an engineer, but when I see the genetic code, I can identify precisely what the code is from. What animal it's from or whatever. Oh, so we've been watching... James Bond movies recently. Yep. <laughs> and in the more recent movies, Bond has started to become one of those of, oh, that's this orchid. It's found here. And that's... Right. That's the code for blood. Yeah. Uh, what? <laughs> well, why do you know all this stuff? Why do you know those things? <laughs> I feel like we also talked about it in another movie. Am I, I think it might have been one of the Godzilla movies where you had the scientist guy who is also like advising the military dudes on yeah. strategic planning. Exactly. Yeah. And like... Movies love to do the thing where scientist equals super smart, super knowledgeable, the person you go to with all the answers. That I am just full to the brim with insight. Yes. It doesn't matter what it is. I am insightful when I wake up and when I go to sleep. <laughs> and the other reason that I like Rhonda as a scientist so much, I like this quality, is that it is a very relatable yeah. thing. Yeah. That I have experienced and I have friends who have also experienced in real life of family members and friends turning to you. <laughs> Shouldn't you know this? Yeah. You're a scientist. Yep. Every now and then my dad will ask me about medical stuff. Yeah. And he'll be like, my arm's been doing this. What do you think that means? Like, I, I think it means you should go to the doctor. Yeah, that sounds bad. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. It says, if you don't do anything about it, I might be able to study it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And it's, it's very refreshing to see a character just kind of throw their hands up at those questions. And also that she reacts the correct way of, no, I don't know. Yes. I don't know how many times I need to say, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> yes. She's just making stuff up. Yes. And it also doesn't hurt that she's a cool character. Oh, she's fun. Like, she's not... You know, a lot of monster movies have this trope of having the lady character who is the damsel or the one who needs saving. Yeah. 
This movie's actually quite good about the women characters. Yes. There are at least two women characters who are awesome. And the other one is fine. Yeah, she's a great mom. She's a great mom. She's a look seems like a perfectly nice person. <laughs> and her and her daughter grew up to fight velociraptors. So yeah, I mean, you know, she's a hacker. They're all <laughs> I pre- she prefers to be called a hacker. <laughs> but Rhonda's coming up with plans, and she's ignoring the dudes when they're bickering, and she's furthering people's survivability. She's not perfect. No. She needs to be helped at various times, like all the other characters. I think I think what it is is she's not treated differently no, from not. the other characters, either for being a woman or for being a scientist. Yeah, like the the worst moment of that is where she gets stuck in the barbed wire and to get her out, her pants come off. Yes. Which is used more as a flirtatious moment between her and Val, Kevin Bacon's character, right? than as a, oh, moment. I remember actually the first time I saw the film, my two thoughts about that were first, of course, the, this woman's pants come off. Yep. And then surprise at how not sexualized yeah. it is. Again, I'm not, I, I don't want to go out and say that it's like, this movie has solved the issues with women's representation. In oh, no, media. no. I thought like that was the goal I was coming here with is tremors <laughs> equals is the cure to we did it. inequality in 1990. Yeah, it is. We just missed it. It's the feminism, feminism vaccine. <laughs> yeah. uh, it just cures it all. No, but it's nowhere near as bad as I had expected it the first time I saw it for a 90s monster movie. Yeah. You'd expect much worse, and she has a much more Dr. Sattler feel. Yes, I was thinking Ellie yeah. a lot. She's very much like Dr. Sattler. And so From she... Jurassic Park, for anyone who has not yet caught on. <laughs> so she, she's, she's very well-rounded as a character, very believable as a scientist, and yeah, very few scientists that I can think of measure up to, like, you're, not only are you just a relatable person, but yeah, that's what we're like. Yeah. <laughs> and I think she's up there with Dr. Sattler mm-hmm. of some of two of my favorite scientists in film. Yes. They're so good. Who are your favorite scientists in film listeners? Oh yes. If you have a really good one from a movie we haven't seen or haven't talked about, let us know. Yeah. Cause that I means mean, we probably should. Grant's good. Yeah. Grant in Jurassic Park is, is a good scientist. Really? The only thing that, uh, Really, the only thing that muddles Grant is that whole, he, he's the rebel birds or dinosaurs scientist yeah. trope that they, you know, that underlying plot line that they push throughout the movie. But other than that, he's yeah. he's pretty good. Then he agreed to be in Jurassic Park 3, which was a bad idea. Yeah, that's a bad, bad person choice, bad scientist <laughs> choice. <laughs> now, this movie, lots of fun, cool stuff to talk about with the creatures, the science, the scientist. And at the beginning... I said that we don't do silver screen science just so that we can pick and and, and criticize each and every little thing. Because that's the easiest thing that you can do to a movie. Right. And it that's fun. Yes. But it's been done. Yeah. And that's not what is interesting to us the most. But it is also fun. So whenever we do silver screen science, we like to designate a time at the end of the episode for what we call mini rants. Mm-hmm which is our opportunity to pick something to actually get pedantic and nitpicky about. Will? 
there's not a lot, I have to say. This movie was actually difficult to find a true mini rant with. Yeah, it was. Like, most movies, there's something where you can be like, yeah, that part just... Ugh. This one doesn't have a lot. The one thing that stands out to me is that the movie very clearly states that they must be hearing... They must be sensing, feeling, really, seismic vibrations. Right. Sound in the fact that it's vibrations, but it's really impact. Right, it's feet walking and it's cars yeah. moving over the Rumbling the of engines and motors. But then there are multiple times in the movie where they also, like, hush one another. Like, yeah. shh, stop it, be quiet. They'll hear you. Okay, well, if you're not moving your feet, you could talk. Yeah. Like... They've done that. I, I, one of my favorite videos I ever saw that really showed the difference between uh, snake senses and ours is they put two cell phones on either side of a rattlesnake and they called one, which was on ringer. Oh. And they called one, which was on silent, but vibrate. And the snake only reacted when the vibrate went off. Oh, that's cool. Because they, they don't have external ears to be hearing. Right. Hearing vibration through a solid medium is very different from picking up vibration through the air. And yes, loud noises can make physical vibrations in the ground, but you got to have a real deep voice <laughs> to yeah. cause some seismic <laughs> vibrations. Like you've got to have a sheer con voice going on. Yes. <laughs> if you want the tr the graboids to sense you just from talking. So there's a couple of times they, they, and you made the good point when we were watching, whether it is that the movie's forgetting that or the characters are forgetting that. Right. That they're just scared. That they're, they're just like, like shh, shh. don't move. Also shut up because there's a monster and I right. don't want to risk it. <laughs> like right. We don't know that they can't hear us. Stop doing anything. <laughs> don't breathe. But the movie does seem to conflate the two. Like there are lots of moments when they're like, all right, we, we got to distract them and they'll stomp. But then they'll also start yelling at the Graboids. Yeah. And I get it. It's more entertaining to watch them yell it's than stomp. It's a movie. Though Stomps was a great uh, band. Sure. Uh, but... And a bad Pokemon move. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it really is. But you didn't need to scream. Like... Yeah. And and there's even one moment where they're shooting guns up in the air. It's like, no, shoot it shoot at the ground. Down. Yeah. <laughs> no, down at the ground. <laughs> Loud does not mean seismic. <laughs> now, you did... You mentioned smell, mm -hmm. which reminded me... Uh, we didn't mention this before. I yeah. I'll throw it in here real quick. They keep mentioning the smell of the creatures. They're smelly animals. And Jim, the doctor, uh, relates it to geysers in Yellowstone. Well, and what he says is they they stink like that. And yeah, it's whether he was saying this smells similar or I've heard geysers smell. Right. Yeah. I, yeah, I'm not sure. So, I, Which makes me wonder what they smell. Yeah, do they smell sulfury Are like you sulfurous? said? Yeah. But that's not my mini rant. My mini rant. So we've talked about monsterification mm. and how you give animals traits to make them monstery. And the graboid, uh, they're smart, they're fast, they're strong. They're it, one of them takes an armory's worth of bullets <laughs> to go down. Yeah, they're very motivated as they will run headlong into things in pursuit of their prey. Yep. But the monsterification trait that bugs me the most in this movie is the noises they make. <laughs> They're making these squealing... Very pig. Sort of pig-like. It's the kind of noises that invertebrates are given in movies all the time. Yeah, it's those... It's the I am not a vertebrate noise. You know, right. There's not a lot of vertebrates that go... Like, and it's this combination of like squealing... 
and shrieking. And gurgling. And, yeah, was, and wet noises and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Which, I, number one, invertebrates don't make noises like that. They don't have vocal cords. <laughs> there are very few ways that invertebrates could make noises. And through the mouth is a very unlikely one. But also, you live underground. Yeah. And you detect things through vibration. It's not a good communicative... That It doesn't make sense that you would have that. It's because you're a movie monster and you have to do the shrieky, squealy thing. And they're cool noises. They're like, cool noises? It sounds cool in the movie. But noise making is almost always a social construct. It is a thing to communicate right movies use it a lot of times movie monsters are given noises to be scary and intimidating yeah to build up uh suspense which is not a way that animals tend to use it there are animals that will use noises as a like rattlesnakes Mm -hmm. as a get away from me noise but there's very it very rarely are animals using noise as like a I'm going to scare you so that you are scared and I can get you kind of, outside of like dolphins stunning fish yes. with echolocation. Yeah, exactly. Though and, I did see a thing one time of a of a leopard in Africa stalking some herd animals at night. I don't remember what they were. And it's like a, a new moon so there's no light, almost pitch dark, and the leopard can still see through starlight the animals and it's stalking around them. And then every now and then purposefully making a noise to panic the herd. Oh, that's cool. To try to hopefully get one of them to run off. Oh, that's cool. So like it does exist, Neat. but that's the only example I can think of. And not in worms. No. Come on movie. And that's, so, that's, a, that's the best nitpick I got. It would have been much better if, if you wanted to have them communicate, because there are moments where it's like they're almost social, they're almost cooperative. Yeah. That you should have had them thrum through yeah, the ground. Yeah, the, like, do the gator thing. Yeah, like like stridulate, you know, rub their scales, you go, and it's yeah. just, you hear them coming because suddenly you'll hear, and then that's like this rumbling noise. It needs to have the bwoms from from Inception. Inception. <laughs> yes, every time they <laughs> I would have been totally on board with with graboids that thrum. Yes, that what what did, what did they call it in Gators? I guess just a growl. Or yeah, a it's it's called the bellow when they that's it, do the bellow. the big one that dances the water. Yeah, I, that that would have been so cool. Yes. Well, that's Tremors. That's Tremors. Overall, good science and just a fantastic movie. Yeah. Creative creatures with thought put into their design. Which we appreciate. Good science. Great job on the scientist. Great job. And other than the monsterfication stuff, all around, pretty darn good. Yeah. And even the monsterfication stuff admittedly can be excused in part because it is actually a monster. They are monsters. Like, you didn't take something and turn it into a monster. You created this creature. Right. Like, I can't complain about the alien, you know, the xenomorphs from Alien being monster because you are a monster. That's what it is. It's not a tiger that you turned into a monster. Yes. So, not all that bad. Well, we hope you've enjoyed this episode. We hope it gives you a- an excuse to watch Tremors as though you needed one. Yep. Watch it again. Watch it again. (laughs) As always, we will record a little bit of extra discussion 
an after discussion for Patreon where we will talk not about science, but just about how we feel about the movie. Yeah. Our personal thoughts. Our our amateur critics' (laughs) opinions. And we hope that everybody is safe and comfortable and keeping your sanity while cooped up at home. (laughs) And in regards to that, we're thinking we might do some more of these. Yeah, let's all fight cabin fever together. So we might do some more watching movies together online. Uh, We had a few technical difficulties doing it this time. We'll see if we can continue doing it. Uh, We know that Netflix isn't available to everybody, so it might just be a limited audience thing. But, well, you know, we'll we'll try out to see what we can find. And we might do more silver screen science to keep you entertained while you're at home, working from home, hanging out with the family, things like that. If you have a particular suggestion... Or vote for a movie, let us know, because like, we, we know lots of movies, but we can't think of everything. Oh, yeah. There are a few movies on Netflix right now that we know are on there that we would be very happy to do. Yep, that are in the crosshairs. <laughs> there are a few somewhat topical movies that we might come up with, so keep your keep your ears out for more Silver Screen Science. And if you're a patron, head on over to Patreon and listen to our bonus after chat discussion about Tremors and what we think about it. What a wonderful movie is. I mean, spoilers, but... Spoilers. It's a great movie. That's... <laughs> spoilers, you're going to have a good time. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Keep listening. Watch some movies. And we'll see you next time. Bye, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.